happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Afterlives is a production of iHeart Podcasts and the Outspoken Podcast Network in partnership with School of Humans. Just a heads up, the following episode discusses transphobia, sexism, racism, physical violence, police violence, sexual assault, and suicide. Take care while listening. When trans folks die, the news cycle doesn't usually last long. More often than not, it's non-existent. There might be outrage on social media, but then a lot of people move on until it happens again. But Laylene's life and her tragic death were different. Something shifted with her story. Laylene's story changed me in so many different ways. Um, Eliel Cruz is an organizer who we spoke to in our last episode. He was behind several rallies on Laylene's behalf. Seeing the ways that Laylene was entrapped to the criminal legal system, everything from the employment discrimination that she faced to her entering sex work as a means of survival, to then being arrested for it, to being thrown into solitary confinement, really helped clarify what I thought the criminal legal system was doing. Every part of the system failed Laylene, which wasn't surprising in the least, especially in our community. Her death sparked an intense desire within Eliel to demand change. And Laylene's story led a lot of people to see the need for that change. On a political level, her experience within the criminal legal system pushed me to understand abolition in a way that I hadn't before. There's no way to actually avoid or prevent violence within the system because this is what it's structured and set up to be. It's a system of punishment and often is used to throw away queer trans people of color. I'm Raquel Willis, and this is Afterlives. Episode 6 of Rallying Cry. Cry. 
To prevent another death like Leilene's from happening, Eliel joined a group of fellow activists and got to work. There was that initial rally at Foley Square in her name, but that was just the start. At the very beginning, my colleague and I sat down and began to formulate what would be the demands in terms of both power ways that we could prevent violence to happen, like it happened to Eileen within Rikers and outside of Rikers that led her to get into Rikers in the first place. Leilene's community decided that her story would not end in tragedy. In fact, it began a fierce march toward justice. Organizers weren't planning to just make cut-and-dry policy suggestions. No, they wanted to show how legislation can impact a life. The most essential part of changing the system would be showing the world what Rikers refused to recognize, that Leilene was a human being. Trying to find ways to humanize and tell the story of Leilene for her 27 years of life previous to being arrested and thrown into Rikers and then thrown into solitary confinement alone where she ended up dying. Leilene could have, and she was in some ways, you know, demonized around her sex work as a means of survival. She was someone who was also mentally ill and allegedly attacked a taxi cab in the middle of a mental health crisis, which sent her to Rikers. It's a tricky thing to maneuver. Eliel, along with Leilene's origin and chosen families, friends, and fellow activists, repeated her story again and again at rallies and in interviews with the press. Momentum grew, and on June 26, 2019, two and a half weeks after Leilene's death, this coalition gathered and publicly read policy demands in front of City Hall in Manhattan. Leilene's name was invoked to shift the laws around things that impacted her life, like sex work and solitary confinement. Activists demanded that the city improve treatment of incarcerated trans people and other gender nonconforming folks. Every year, the anniversary of Leilene's death is a reminder to ask, has anything really changed? Could this still happen one or two or even now, four years later? After all, we've seen some major wins in the wake of Leilene's death. A few happened pretty quickly. The only reason that Leilene's story ended up getting so many results in the ways that it did was because of this sustained public outcry and media attention that we were able to get. Without it, all these things would have happened in a year. Since that early burst of attention, Eliel has seen several policies fall short of what organizers hoped for. There have been compromises, rollbacks, and a lot of resistance. A lot of the big, splashy headlines, unfortunately, haven't fully come to fruition, or policy wins haven't actually come through or have been walked back. How do we continue both as a public to tell those stories, no matter how long it takes or how many years down the road, that we continue to have the same energy or care about the stories because the families are definitely still out there. In this episode, we're talking about three major policies 
that are now a part of Laylene's legacy. We want to understand, could her death still happen today? It is really sad that sometimes we have to find these terrible situations in order to create momentum. But in my sadness, I thought this is the moment to act. That's Cecilia Gentili from previous episodes. She's a formerly incarcerated sex worker and founder of Decrim New York, an advocacy group dedicated to decriminalizing sex work in New York State. She brought together a diverse coalition to draft legislation. I am a huge defender of people who engage in the sex trade or use drugs, right? Because these two things that are highly criminalized are not most of the times the result of choice. And how much is a choice if it's the only choice? A key demand from supporters after Laylene's death was to repeal the so-called walking while trans law. The policy criminalized loitering for the purpose of sex work. It was weaponized against trans women from all walks of life. These struggles and experiences are connected, and Laylene's death illuminated those connections for so many people. We understand what we go through in life because we belong to the same community. That brings you to another level of community. In the months following Laylene's death, the Queen's District Attorney race elevated sex work criminalization as a critical issue for the city. The following year, then-Mayor Bill de Blasio was asked whether he thought sex workers should be arrested. He said no, referencing Laylene's story. By 2021, New York State's loitering for the purpose of prostitution law was repealed. I'm thinking today about that extraordinarily powerful moment from this past summer's Black Lives Matter protest. Here's New York State Senator Brad Hoyleman Siegel, who sponsored its repeal on the assembly floor the day of the vote. More than 15,000 New Yorkers gathered outside of the Brooklyn Museum to march for justice. And this march was led by transgender women of color. And we're on the Senate floor today to reaffirm that message we heard at the Brooklyn Museum. Black trans lives matter. The bill we're passing today repeals an outdated and infamous part of our penal code, section 240.37, just a series of numbers. But it gives police the power to stop or detain transgender women for simply walking down the street I proudly vote aye, Mr. President. Announce the results. Ayes 45, nay 16. The bill is passed. What happened with the walking while trans bill, I would have to say, was absolutely phenomenal. That was phenomenal work. That's Kristen Lavelle, a formerly incarcerated sex worker turned film director. Her documentary, The Stroll, centers the decades-long story of trans sex workers of color in New York's meatpacking district. This repeal was a huge win for people like Kristen and Cecilia, who became accustomed to excessive harassment and arrests from police every time they went outside. 
it also sealed thousands of convictions, meaning people once convicted of loitering would no longer have to deal with many of the consequences of a criminal record. I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? As slow as New York City is, they are trying to change and make the difference. In 2022, there were just over 100 arrests for sex work-related crimes in New York City. That's compared to almost 20,000 in 1985. Repealing the walking while trans law was an important part of this downward trend. But for activists, decreasing arrest numbers isn't enough. If there's anything I've learned from Laylene's story, it's that as nice as it sounds for DAs or police officers to say they're going to change policy, it's far too easy for people to slip through the cracks. The NYPD said they would stop arresting sex workers in 2017. But months later, Laylene was arrested in a sex work sting. The DA said it would stop seeking bail for misdemeanors. And yet, over a year later, Laylene's bell was set, a burden that triggered the cascade of events that led to her death. Every sex work arrest that still happens is a chance for somebody to succumb to the same fate as Laylene, which makes higher-level policy change and adherence to that policy so important. Fully decriminalizing sex work may sound ambitious, but people like Cecilia believe it's necessary and within reach. Do you have hope that full decrim will be passed? I have to say, sister, I wish I was more humble and say, like, I didn't have any hopes for this coalition. I don't waste my time. (laughs) I don't do shit if I don't picture it happening. You hear that? That's the voice of a true icon. Hearing Cecilia empowered by these wins is so affirming. And it's because of the vision carried by people like her that these intertwined issues are starting to click for others. The Coalition for Walking While Trans included people that might not even necessarily support the comprehensive decriminalization of sex work. Although I do think the Walking While Trans campaign actually got people uh, further along on the sex work decrim journey. That's Jared Trujillo. When we talked to him, he was serving as policy counsel to the New York Civil Liberties Union. Today, he's an associate professor at CUNY School of Law. He's also a former sex worker. He helped write the proposed legislation to decriminalize sex work. It was introduced in the New York legislature just days after Laylene passed away. This is the first bill that was introduced in the United States that would meaningfully and comprehensively uh, decriminalize sex work. But what exactly does it mean to comprehensively decriminalize sex work? Well, at a baseline level, consensual sex work would become legal, and the workers participating in it wouldn't be penalized. But the legislation goes even further. It decriminalizes people that work with the worker. Let's say that I am selling sex and person B is translating for me. Or I am selling sex 
and person B is going with me to ensure safety, or I'm selling sex and person B is negotiating with me. This bill recognizes how sex workers organize around work. And finally, the bill also decriminalizes clients. Where about 90% of the sex work arrests in New York are of people of color. For clients, it's actually a little bit higher. It's around 93%, even though we know that two-thirds of clients are white. There are different models for decriminalizing sex work. One is the in-demand model, which originated in Sweden and is used in a handful of other countries. It basically says we won't arrest sex workers, but instead targets their clients. Many activists argue that this is a flawed approach. The World Health Organization, Amnesty International, and most serious harm reduction organizations recognize that in order to actually decriminalize the worker, you also have to decriminalize the client. If you are still criminalizing the client, you have massive amounts of surveillance that are being weaponized against the worker. It is actually more difficult for workers to do things like negotiate condom use, to screen clients to determine, hey, am I gonna be safe if I go with this human? Criminalizing their clients only makes them have to go further underground to find clients. That's why Decrim NY, the organization Cecilia started, supports decriminalizing consensual sex work in its entirety. Currently, the legislation is in committee, which essentially means lawmakers can study it, see what the public thinks, and make revisions. That all happens before it's brought to the assembly floor for a vote. We're in 2023 now. It doesn't seem likely that the bill will pass this year, but I will tell you, I have booked a tattoo appointment for 2025 when this bill passes. I believe in my heart of heart, in my bones, in my soul, that we will pass this bill in either 2025 or 2027. And I, I... Meanwhile, the coalition that sex workers are building to raise awareness and push for this legislation continues to grow. We can have a much longer conversation about puritanical views on sex in this country, but even in this environment, sex workers have just done a really good job of forcing the public to see us as human and to recognize that our safety matters. Early steps toward decriminalization were already taking shape when Laylene was alive, but they didn't save her. And as long as people continue to be arrested for sex work and forced to the margins, Laylene's story remains a clarion call for change. This past spring, people came together at City Hall to talk about many of the interconnecting issues that affected Laylene. The rally was called Care Not Criminalization, a message that united people invested in issues from sex work arrest to mental health care to the conditions on Rikers Island. Today I'm here to raise my voice and that so many of my trans sisters who has been criminalized and constantly harassed by the police. One thing was clear. Abolishing walking while trans wasn't the end of this fight. Sex work is work, and it's important to continue protecting our community. When we say trans, you say power. Trans! Power! Trans! But Laylene's demise wasn't just the result of a sex work arrest. And another battle was taking shape. 
We'll be right back. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome back. After Laylene's death, the solitary unit in the women's jail where she died was vacant for a few weeks. Activists focused on closing it permanently. Laylene's sister Melania quickly became a prominent figure in this effort. I am coming for writers. she spoke those words at the first Brooklyn Liberation March in 2020. Aileen Polanco should not have been in Rikers to begin with. Then Mayor Bill de Blasio held a press conference announcing his intention to end solitary confinement in New York City. We can't bring her back, but we can make change so that no one else goes through such a tragedy. So let's take the next step. Let's end solitary confinement altogether. That was June 29th, 2020, a year after Laylene's death. De Blasio immediately put a protocol into place, barring anyone with a number of serious health conditions, like Laylene's seizure disorder, from being housed in solitary. To end solitary altogether, he said he would create a panel to investigate what that policy should look like. What he didn't say is when that policy would be enacted. It's been more than three years since that announcement, and de Blasio is out of office. Since 2020, there have been panels and consultants and more consultants. Some policies were drafted, and some even passed. But the final day for solitary confinement hasn't arrived yet. It is so hard to know if things have gotten better since Laylene's death. Here's WNYC and Gotham Miss reporter Matt Katz. Certainly, Laylene Polanco became a rallying cry. Laylene Polanco's name was invoked at every rally and protest regarding the push to end solitary confinement. 
One major piece of legislation was passed at the state level less than a year after de Blasio's announcement. It's called the HALT Solitary Confinement Act. HALT stands for Humane Alternatives to Long-Term Solitary Confinement. This act was seen as a momentous occasion because, like, it was literally supposed to halt (laughs) solitary confinement. The passage of this law was a key demand made by activists rallying for Laylene. Today, I'm thinking about Laylene Polanco. Her name was mentioned by the bill's sponsor, Senator Julia Salazar, on the floor of the New York State Legislature during the vote. Solitary confinement in our carceral system has not only caused sickness in individuals, it has also made our society sick. But in passing this bill today, we are taking a necessary step to begin to heal. Senator Solidar, to be recorded in the affirmative, announce the results. Ayes 42, nays 21. The bill is passed. To be clear, the law doesn't end solitary confinement. It simply puts restrictions on how it can be used. It prohibited the placement of any incarcerated person in solitary confinement for more than 15 days in a row, and it required a range of rights for the people in that environment. Holding a prisoner in solitary confinement for more than 15 consecutive days is recognized as a form of torture by the United Nations. And though the law imposed limitations around who can be put in solitary and how often, some of the act's most fundamental tenets go unenforced. The statistics that we saw in the summer of 2022, months after the law was supposed to go into effect, it showed that 228 people were held for longer than 15 days. 50 were locked in for between 31 and 90 days. And of all the people held in solitary units, the average length of stay was 16.1 days. So (laughs) two months after the HALT Act passed, the New York State Correctional Officers Union, representing the officers who work in jails and prisons, filed a lawsuit to overturn it. They did not succeed. But the union countered with a campaign to put pressure on politicians to reinstate solitary without restrictions. COs argue that solitary confinement is necessary to control violence inside carceral settings. The problem with jails and prisons in America is politicians can make all the laws they want, but once those cell block doors close, it's hard to know what's going on in there. It's hard to enforce rules that politicians make on the outside. And um, you constantly hear stories about various laws meant to make incarcerated situations more humane, stories about those laws being violated. Efforts by lawmakers on the city level to strengthen solitary regulations have also been hard to implement. The Risk Management Accountability System, or RMAS, was approved in New York City in 2021. The measure is meant to provide more support to incarcerated folks who would have otherwise been placed in solitary confinement. RMAS was rooted in giving them positive incentives to improve their behavior, therapeutic programming to address whatever mental and behavioral health concerns they might have. Again, 
Among other things, the policy also set new limitations on how many hours someone could be confined to a cell alone each day. These new rules mandated that anybody who is charged with a violation of the rules at Rikers, who is then sentenced to some sort of uh, punitive segregation, they would get access to legal representation and they would be given at least 10 hours every day to access the law library, educational services, recreation, and phones. While advocates still had concerns about this measure, the rollout was highly anticipated. But (laughs) this plan was never implemented. It requires like 300 officers and captains to run this new system around the clock. And COVID happens, and there's some labor disputes, and correction officers at Rikers Island stop showing up to work in mass. In spring of 2020, about 30% of COs called out sick or unavailable to work, resulting in staff shortages that would continue for two years. Officers claim this was not an organized protest against the solitary confinement changes, but their absence did put the reforms on hold. With limited staff at Rikers, Mayor de Blasio signed an executive order declaring a state of emergency at the jail, effectively delaying RMAS implementation. The policy repeatedly got pushed back and officers remained steadfast in their resistance. CO union members testified their strong opposition to reforms at a city jail's oversight committee hearing last year. My name is Reginald Fisher. I'm a correction officer currently working in the largest facility on Rikers Island. This is a vital tool to take back control of the situation. Restricted housing is not a barbaric living condition. Rikers Island is not safe. It's not going to help by removing the only tool that currently exists, such as punitive segregation, to maintain order and safety for incarcerated individuals. We took this job on force to protect the individual, but it's time to start asking who's protecting us. Right now, the RMAS plan is on hold indefinitely. Nonetheless, some officials still claim solitary confinement was eradicated in New York City. Louis Molina was NYC's correction commissioner for the past two years. Recently, someone else took over the role. But under his tenure, he insists that he did, in fact, end solitary confinement. Here's Molina in July 2022 speaking to Matt Katz on New York Public Radio. We don't have anybody in solitary confinement here. We've ended punitive segregation a long time ago here in this department, and I'm real proud of that. Molina goes on to say that instead of solitary confinement, the Department of Correction is using restrictive housing. So just to reconfirm, the department does not practice solitary confinement. We do have restrictive housing and individuals in restrictive housing get a minimum of seven hours out of cell time. To be clear, restrictive housing is technically where Leilene was held. This is meant to be a variation on solitary confinement with more out-of-cell time. But like we've said before in this series, a lot of this comes down to semantics. 
Leilene's housing cell was not differentiated in any way from the traditional solitary cells in the women's jail. People in restrictive housing often don't receive even close to the full seven hours of time allowed out of their cells. Sometimes they're let out just to be chained to a desk right outside the cell door. Former Mayor de Blasio, the jail's oversight body, and many others agree that Leilene's restrictive housing unit was solitary confinement. My reporting shows that solitary confinement continues to exist. It just goes by many different names. Here's Matt Katz again. De-escalation units are caged showers. These showers are used to hold people who the officers want to separate from the rest of the population. In August of 2021, a man named Brandon Rodriguez died by suicide while being held in one of these showers. People can be held in these showers for as long as a day, so that's another form of solitary confinement that doesn't necessarily meet the definition of solitary confinement, as the correction commissioner would explain it, but it certainly sounds like solitary confinement. There's also the practice of security lockdowns, which can affect large swaths of the Rikers population at once. If there's a disturbance, sometimes the officers decide they want to do a search for contraband, they will lock down a jail. And those lockdowns can go on for such a long period of time that people are locked in their cells for what might constitute solitary confinement by most standards. There aren't really rules governing that kind of thing. But lawyers tell me that once you're on lockdown, if you're in a unit that's locked down, you don't have access to showers, you have to take a bath using toilet water, there's no out-of-cell time, the provision of food can be scarce and inconsistent. This also means people may be held without medical care, including prescription medicines and the attention of doctors and nurses. These issues still plague Rikers and other jails in New York State today. Solitary confinement is still being practiced with new names, but the same dehumanizing treatment. And it's a hard pill to swallow. Even the policies meant to stop solitary in Leilene's name can't fully prevent someone from falling into her same situation. Progress will take continued pressure from activists, reporting on the truth of what happens behind bars and an acknowledgement that this fight isn't over. We'll be back in just a moment to hear about the progress that was made for trans people at Rikers and how easily it was reversed. Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. 
big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. We're back with Afterlives. Even with pushes to change solitary confinement policies and repealing walking while trans legislation, there's a stark reality we face today. Trans people will still have brushes with the carceral system. And when that happens, it's important that we have support. But the truth is that trans people who end up behind bars are left with few resources tailored to them. That's ultimately what happened to Laylene. There weren't enough people looking out for her at Rikers. She was cut off from the world as she struggled with her mental health and was shuffled from housing unit to housing unit. As much as the entire system needs to change, it's crucial to have advocates on the inside to look out for folks while that happens. After Laylene's death, the Department of Correction established a unit with the promise of keeping the best interests of LGBTQ plus people in mind. My role was just to be that support system. The fact that this unit existed alone really made LGBTQ folks feel safer to be out because nothing like this has ever existed before. So our presence alone was really impactful to the mental health of folks on Rikers. That's Robin Robinson. They were a social worker in the LGBTQ plus affairs unit at Rikers Island. The unit was in the works for a while, but after Laylene's death, activists ramped up calls for new policies and better treatment of trans and gender nonconforming people in jail. The unit was officially established less than a month after Laylene's death, and over time, it grew from one employee to three. Robin was that final employee to join the unit in the spring of 2021. I was thinking, wow, like they hired three of us. Like that must mean they're really seeing that support is needed. So that alone, the fact that we were hired here made me feel hopeful. Their job included assisting LGBTQ plus people with proper housing, gender affirming care and clothing and helping with bail. We were able to connect because of shared experiences of being LGBTQ and we created our own little family, so to speak. Maybe if this unit had existed when Laylene was at Rikers, they could have connected her with one of the bail funds they worked closely with. Or maybe there would have been somebody to advocate for her to stay in the transgender housing unit instead of being moved to solitary confinement. When you start to look at the what-ifs of Laylene's death, they really start to pile up. And her story stayed top of mind for people working in the unit. Within the LGBTQ unit, we discussed her passing. It kind of gave us that motivation to, like, this is why we need to be here so that we can avoid 
or at least attempt to avoid unnecessary deaths like this. In spite of resistance from correction officers and rampant transphobia, Robin and their colleagues were able to make changes. They were even able to bring some joy into a pretty bleak place. One bright spot was a Christmas ball thrown in the transgender housing unit in December of 2021. The LGBTQ plus affairs unit found speakers and made a playlist. The folks living in the unit transformed blankets into skirts and tied up their uniforms so they looked like crop tops. Women who were considered shy came out of their shells with amazing lip syncs and dance routines. You know how our people do. That Christmas ball was a reminder. We can always create community, even in the darkest places. But like many things that exist within a carceral system, even those that are meant to be progressive and forward-looking, this unit and the support they brought had severe challenges and limitations. There is literal gatekeeping at Rikers. Kel Savage worked with Robin as a social worker in the LGBTQ plus affairs unit. While I definitely felt at the time that the position was for optics to make the DOC look like they were responding to the obvious humanitarian crisis against the transgender population, especially with Laylene. <laughs> it was surprising how much we were able to do despite a lot of the barriers. Kells was frequently faced with emergencies and situations of life or death. And it was hard not to feel jaded. I had somebody messaging me on a tablet. They were like, I'm going to slip my wrists. Like, I'm done. And I, I couldn't get there quickly. And I would have to call the facility and be like, this individual, they're in unit, da-da-da. You have to do something. On the other end of the line, Kel's sense of urgency wasn't matched. And it was just like, who are you? And then I'd have to say, like, I, my name is Kels. I'm part of the LGBTQ unit, da-da-da. And they're like, what the hell is that? You're like, they're like, I don't even know what you are. And I was like, okay, well, I'm calling from a DOC number. <laughs> and like, I am telling you, somebody right now is trying to kill themselves. It felt impossible to push up against the system at Rikers, even in dire circumstances. All that Kells and Robin could do was try their best to positively impact the lives of individual people. That's what kept them going. Still, about six months after they started working at Rikers, something shifted. I think the turning point for me was when this new administration came in with Eric Adams, we started to lose our power, so to speak, and being able to advocate for folks going into safer housing, for example. Every time we would have a conversation about transphobia, it was like one year, not the other. So I'm here today to once again use a term you're going to hear. Mayor Adams, who came into office in January 2022, is a former New York Police Department captain. And I think far too long we have demonized those men and women who are law enforcement officers. Just before his inauguration, he made it clear that he stood firmly with correction officers at Rikers. This is a part of the speech he made when announcing Molina as correction commissioner. 
Just as I'm telling my cops, I have your backs when you do the right thing, I'm saying to this union, I have your back. Adams made a lot of changes right off the bat, and several key allies to the LGBTQ plus affairs unit were fired. Kells and Robin started to feel like their jobs were becoming obsolete. All title and no influence. I started to feel complicit with the mistreatment of people in custody. And I couldn't do that. If we want to talk about the basic rules of social work, it's, you know, the client comes first. And I could not be a part of an agency that was killing my clients. And at that point, I felt that I would make more of an impact if I resigned and spoke out. Kel's last day was in April of 2022 less than a year after she started. Robin quit a few months later. As a trans person of color who connected with the people they worked with, Robin's work was deeply personal. And so was their resignation. It got to a point where it's like, okay, if I don't leave, I am going to commit suicide. Like, I was at my breaking point. So I had to make the decision to leave and... To be honest, uh, like, I still regret the decision because I feel like I abandoned my community for doing so. The unit still exists today, but is left with just a single employee. One person is not enough. I don't think much change can be done with just one person. And without the support of staff, like, especially from the commissioner, like, other departments, not much change is going to happen. The policies made in Leilene's name have all played out differently. The walking while trans repeal has successfully been enacted and helped fuel a larger movement. Other policies have been harder to enforce or have fallen apart. And that's hard to sit with. I heard from organizers and from Laylene's family how frustrating it's been. I'm a huge proponent that every person is meant to do their part to create some good in the world. Eliel, the organizer of Leilene's rally, who you've heard from earlier, does this work day in and day out, year after year. It is about individuals figuring out what they're best suited for in movement work. To sustain that without losing hope, it's important for him to resist complacency and uphold his belief that collective action can make a difference. I think that many of us have been complacent with posting on social media and giving some money, and that's not nearly enough in order to actually respond to the level of attacks that trans people are facing in this country right now. So finding different ways to plug in, because there's definitely people waiting for you to plug in. Eliel wants us to show up for trans lives all the time, not only in the wake of death. I continue to just think about ways to tell Leilene Polanco's story. Because it's people's lives that ultimately give this work meaning and purpose. Often we end up minimizing individuals' experiences around the police or state to those couple of minutes or those couple of days or weeks detained. And it really minimizes and, and ignores the breath of life of the person that we lost. And I got to learn so much about Leilene. I got to hear what kind of a person she was growing up, how she cared so much about animals, how she started growing up in the ballroom scene. She liked to go out and dance. And I was like, there's just so much about Leilene that I really love to learn about. 
Eliel, like myself and so many others, could see ourselves in aspects of Laylene's life. And that's what makes her story a rallying cry. It's how she lives on. And it's why we need to keep fighting. Organize, organize, organize. Laylene's story radicalized me and helped me become a better organizer and a better person. I attribute so much to pushing for justice for Laylene. Next week on Afterlives, we'll look to the future. The future of Rikers, trans rights, and Laylene's family. I still try to look for her and everything. And I mean everything, even if it's an animal <laughs> that comes up to me. I'm like, Laylene. I'm here to make what is really a historic announcement. New York City will close the Rikers Island jail facility. One of the strategies to try to attack and ultimately eliminate trans people is to posit us as an ideology, not as human beings. I dream of a future of trans people being safe. Thank you so much for listening to Afterlives. You can find this episode and future ones on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review to let us know what you think. Afterlives is a production of iHeart Podcasts and the Outspoken Podcast Network in partnership with School of Humans. I'm your host and creator, Raquel Willis. Dylan Hoyer is our senior producer and script writer. Our associate producer is Joey Pat. Sound design and engineering by Daisy Makes Radio Productions with additional support from Jess Kreinchich. Story editing by Aaron Edwards and Julia Ferlon. Fact-checking by Savannah Hugley. Our show art is by Makai Baldwin. Score composed by Wazi Murray. Our production manager is Daisy Church. Special thanks to Eliel Cruz for the recordings of the Brooklyn Liberation March. Executive producers include me, Raquel Willis, and Jay Brunson from the Outspoken Podcast Network, Michael Alder June and Noel Brown from iHeart Podcasts, Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and Elsie Crowley from School of Humans, and The Cats Company. School of Humans. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. 
join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.